0: Hi Kyle, my name is Sonia, I'm from Argentina, I live in Oregon and I'm about to head to El Salvador for some waves, hopefully. Anyway, your show is amazing. I really, really enjoyed the episode on plastic pollution, thought it was super enlightening. And your comment on the airport doors almost made me spill my coffee, I had to laugh so hard. Anyway, keeping awesome. Get some waves. Thanks for doing what you do. Thank you very much for sending that in. I think that the airport door comment was referring to a little rant I went on a while ago about how much I love people who walk outside of the airport, and as soon as they do, they stop. Like there's no one that would ever want to come out behind them because they've reached the new world. They smell the fresh air. And then they create a fucking traffic jam right in the airport doors. So I'm happy you got a little laugh about, about that. I um, hope you're all having a wonderful day today. Uh, I am. I am still on the road to recovery with my arm. I had whew, I had one of the more awkward encounters uh, I've had in quite a while. Yesterday, and it doesn't have a good punchline. It's not a funny story, but I'm gonna let you all know about it. So I was doing yoga, and it was the first day that I had um, come back to yoga since snapping my wrist, since having surgery. I have a big scar on the bottom of my wrist now. Um, and there was this woman in class, and she was being very supportive of me, saying, "Good job, you'll make it through." I'm like, thanks appreciate it and then after the class she turned to me and she said I'm going to make an assumption that you're in here for the same reason that I'm in here and I said what's that assumption and she looked at my wrist and she said you're a cutter and I looked back at her and said no I broke my arm kite surfing and we just stared at each other And I didn't know what to do. (laughs) It's not funny. It's not funny. But it was so awkward. I just said, I wish you the best. And then she got up and she walked away. And there's so much in that encounter. And I'm still dissecting it all. But there's the assumption that she made about me. But also the intention behind that assumption, which was good. She wanted to make me feel like, you know, there was a community there if I was struggling. And then there's the taboo subject of suicide that as a culture, we sweep under the rug real quickly. Um, And I wondered, you know, if if suicide wasn't a taboo subject, would that moment have still felt so uncomfortable you know because if she would have said if you're you're in here for the same reason that i'm in here a broken arm it would have been fine we'd have talked about how our healing's going but when we enter into the subject of psychological pain all of a sudden there's this constriction around it even though so many people are in her position i would be willing to bet that someone else in that class struggled with suicide given the epidemic that there is in this country so like i said it's not a funny story but it's been top of mind because that 15 second encounter just brought up so much so much other than that though my healing process has been going very well I've been eating a lot of wild venison from a recent hunting trip I did on Maui with Jake Muse. I recommend checking that episode out if you haven't already. I've been smoking it in the Traeger, having a good time learning new recipes. Another exciting thing that happened to me just yesterday is um I found out that Lawrence Lessig, the Harvard Law professor, is going to be a presenter for Mofa's 19. Um he was a fan of what we did last year, and uh, he's going to fly out and, and present one of the categories, which is exciting because he is one of my heroes. Um, to be perfectly honest, he is a the clearest voice on campaign finance reform in America right now. He s- talks about it in a very eloquent way, and one thing that always stuck with me is he says, he said campaign finance reform is not the most important issue but it is the first issue and i agree with that whether or not you are left or right i think that you can agree that until we get our our politicians to align themselves with our interests rather than have their allegiance allegiances to multinational corporations we will not solve any other issues Um, Check out Lawrence Lessig's interview on Joe Rogan's podcast. It was superb. I really think that if we read the work and listened to the podcasts that Lawrence Lessig and Matt Taibbi do, we would be 90% of the way there as far as um, becoming literate and being able to decode media landscape and sift through all of the bullshit um i had the opportunity to have matt Taibbi on this podcast and um he's just also been such a clear voice on the banking collapse which i do think is one of the most important issues in this country and uh which he predicts will happen again i hope it doesn't but if it does i think that we should know who to place the blame on um still unfortunately a lot of people don't understand that the collapse was manufactured by Goldman Sachs and Chase Bank and B of A and a lot of these crooks on Wall Street that were that were taking what people thought were AAA A rated loans and muddying those numbers so that a very volatile loan would be seen as more safe. And uh as a result, my uh my grandfather, Ian had to go, bet he lost his life savings, went back to work as a grocer at Ben Loman supermarket at 92 years old. It's because he's a fucking gangster, Ian Tierman. Anywho, uh, a new box of goodies just went up on my website, kyle.surf. So this is a box of uh, mud water, which is a chai mushroom blend. It's cacao and chaga and reishi and lion's mane turmeric i drink it every single morning uh it is a a a bottle of cbd coconut oil which is just glorious i lather it on my skin and i put big scoops of it in my coffee and it is a signed copy of the psychedelic explorer's guide by dr jim fadiman Um, so if you want that box of mud water Santa Cruz Medicinal CBD and the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide for a greatly discounted price on my website. Head over to kyle.surf before it's gone. I think I'm only doing maybe 40 of them this month. Um, I did it last month and they sold out in just a few days. So head over to kyle.surf before they are all gone. My guest today... Oh, uh, finally, Santa Cruz Medicinals also has a discount code for you. um, Kyle10. Head over to SCMedicinals.com and type in Kyle Ten to get 10% off all of their products. My guest today is Jeff Denholm. Jeff Denholm is as tough as they come. Born and raised on the southern coast of Maine, he lost his dominant arm in an accident on an Alaskan fishing trawler. With self-designed prosthetics, his connection to the ocean has only grown. He surfs, dives, body surfs, and competes in long-distance paddleboard races. He also successfully launched Atira Systems, a green chemistry innovator in firefighting, in the firefighting industry. We talked about all of that in the podcast, and I love this guy to death. I've known him forever. Please welcome to the show... Yeah, it's an interesting experience having uh, an injury at 29 as opposed to an injury at 16 or, or 23, because I've broken my left arm three times. Uh, and then this is my first right arm. And I'm noticing uh, how I'm taking it differently psychologically. Yeah. Like before, it was always just like, ah, this sucks. Okay, power through, on yeah. to the next one. Yeah, yeah. But uh, as I told you before we went on, like this was the first experience that I had that felt truly out of control where it was like, whoa,
1: that could have gone either way. Well, you just see the bigger picture when you're older. Right. Like, so I lost my arm at 26. I turned 27 in the hospital. And for me, maybe because I was a little bit of an emotional late bloomer and sort of a bull in a china shop, even at 26, you know, the Alaskan fisherman gnarly guy, it didn't resonate at the time even then how profound the injury was, and it took me not years to. If I can physically, I kind of charge right after it, and I think that sort of ignorance and the bull in the china shop mentality got me through that initial hurdle. But as my emotional being developed, the problem, the spectrum of challenges became broader, and in in that respect, the spectrum of opportunity became broader as well. I how mean, so? Well, just recognizing what I had to do to emotionally to fully adapt and then experiencing myself in the world as a as a very obvious um, minority and being viewed as quote unquote disabled and knowing well, damn well that I'm not and recognizing my role as a as an inspirational athlete um, as an inspiration period and then to really, be able to personally quantify all that it meant to me so I could probably communicate it to others to help them. Right. I mean, that's, which is a, a lot. Yeah, it? that is a lot.
0: It doesn't seem like that kind of lesson
1: comes overnight. No.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was thinking today about how um, they say scars are like tattoos, but with better stories. Yeah. And how often people will get tattoos to remind themselves of something. You know, they'll get a <laughs> tattoo on their <laughs> forearm and I'm thinking, oh, well, now I have two tattoos on my forearms and what's the reminder that it's going to give me because I don't want to take this injury as um something where I overcorrect. you know like I've always been I think a little bit more of like all right we'll just let's
1: go for it and see what happens right stay in the don't overthink it you don't want to overthink it
0: and be like oh shit well I'm never going to do anything dangerous ever again (laughs) but at the same time I want to I don't want to be stupid, and I don't want to. I don't want to have another injury like this happen again. And I think that this one came as a result of me moving, doing what I do have always done, which is move a little too quickly. I tend to pick things up really quickly, mm. and then sometimes I slam. And most, most times, it does, you know, you don't slam that hard, and you derive great benefit from that mentality. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I I, I haven't really taken the full lesson yet i feel like i'm still right in the midst of it and probably some good uh like a good silent meditation retreat would be would do me good this time well you're, ga- time you're,
1: you're gaining uh perspective on what it would might be like to live with one arm for the rest of your life yeah ain't easy i'm not looking for sympathy but no it's, but it's, it's uh yeah you sure you your, know the hardest thing for me yeah isn't the physical part even despite being an athlete and I was a, I could have been should have been and would have been a lot of things greater than I am physically if I hadn't lost my arm but the hardest thing for me is that I get asked every day what happened I'm an extreme minority you know even more extreme than say an african-american in santa cruz which is a minority and in a mostly white rich town i'm a tall outgoing guy with a big black carbon fiber arm and then when i'm in the water i'm a tall outgoing guy with a flipper so you know and people uh, you know 99 percent of the time there's no malice in in people's inquisitiveness it's just they're i'm different so they ask so i get asked every day and it's like you know i i figured out how to tie my shoe with one hand a long time ago but Having to muster up the emotional fortitude at awkward times in the cash register at New Leaf on a Thursday afternoon when you're fucking tired, and some kid's pulling, "What happened? What happened? What happened?" And the mommy goes, "He's just a curious kid." I'm like, "Well, mom, you know it's showing twelve for me, 2, 4, 7, 3, 6, 5. And so sometimes I just you just got to take Junior away because I can't I, handle it right
0: now. Well, it shows even. I mean, not to uh, even compare my experience. 2 years but just in the couple weeks of having a broken arm everyone it's a it's a conversation opener for people but it shows that you know you appreciate it so much when they don't ask right right it's just like oh fuck thank you and it shows many times their level of uh consciousness and their their level of um I don't know just thoughtfulness about a situation you know it's like people who walk into a house and take their shoes off if they see other shoes at the door and aren't asked (laughs) you know and then there's people who they walk into a house on the shoes (laughs) step on the shoes and walk right through it it's like hey there's no malice in that intent but if you know you can notice oh there's there's a couple slippers on the ground here maybe i'll take mine off as well um and yeah i think it it just it's all learned right and you um Yeah, that's that's a big part of life, right? It's just walking into a a situation and understanding how you're how you can make it a little bit better, you know, uh-huh. and not ask the questions that a million other people are going to ask. I mean, it's a little—it's a little like being famous in yep. the sense that you know, famous people have have that.
1: Right, anonymity is the thing of my past. If there was ever a point in my life where I was anonymous, despite you know the big mouth and being tall, <laughs> curly—I used to have long curly <laughs> the hair. Devilish right? good I looks. I had, had a mohawk in college and was a troublemaker, so I, I'm not anonymous anymore. Right. You know, like my bank robbing days. are are over before they started. Right. <laughs> so, and you know, it's funny because you say the tattoo thing, I've got scar talk scars, I've got tons and tons of tattoos, but I don't have any real tattoos. My dad said to me, I was going to get a tattoo when I was young and I was in Alaska and it was, I was going to get this big Indian band around my arm. And he's like, son, ask yourself this, do you ever see a bumper sticker on a Ferrari? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you tell me I'm a Ferrari dad? He's like, yes. That's a good one. <laughs> I like that. No offense to those with tattoos because, I mean, it's some pretty cool tattoos out there. There but, are. But that was his advice to me. And I panicked and I never got one. And now I've got this big, giant black one that Th- is my a arm.
0: Yeah. Um, so since then, would you say that you kind of doubled down on the bull in the China shop? mentality or how has that mentality well, did sh- shif- shifted for you? I mean because oh, you know, we were just talking about this you're like man kite surfing you got to go in the snow and kite surf that's the shit or oh, <laughs> know, a couple <laughs> weeks ago I was out big wave surfing at Himalayas like you very much still get after it but Trying. Um, I would imagine that that, that there is still a, a a very personal conversation inside
1: your head At all times, it's becoming broader as a result of the brain injury I had a couple years ago and how significant that was, and how potentially how permanent another potential permanent life-altering injury and I've just really since then started to second guess a lot of the my drive like why what am I getting like I had a friend that he's a surfer he's also a, a shrink he lives in Monterey one of my best buddies Ronnie Triplett he's like well well what what are you getting out of it now what have you have to prove what box haven't you checked you need to assess that for yourself especially in these matters of life and death And so, yeah, the bull in the china shop thing I think got me over the hurdle initially. I lost my arm as a merchant marine at sea in the engine room of a dragger in Alaska in heavy seas. We're thrown ninety degrees. I got tossed in a hole, sucked into a drive shaft, mangled my arm, broke my neck, and almost lost all my blood. I was an EMT on the ship, saved my own life. Twenty-one hours getting beat to shit in a storm before a helicopter got to me to pull me off. And I started to rebuild, build my life from there. And yeah, the bowl in the China shop got me through that initial trauma. And I think gave me the drive to rebuild my athletic life one by one, mountain biking, skiing, you know, you name it. Um, surfing certainly, which is since my loss of my arm has been the most relevant sport to me. I mean, I, I love hockey skating the most. It's the most natural but surfing's the hardest to do with one arm, so it really, it just, you know, discovering that after losing my arm, and like you, things come, athletically, come pretty easy to me. You know, I'm an Olympian, but I, they, they come, yeah, you're a C1 hockey player, yeah, right? and they yeah, and so they're easy. It's just come easier, and I've always had an attraction to physical things. But, um, and the the bull in the china shop got me through it now and I'm no longer there. I'm like starting to second guess myself and I'm starting to think about what the next chapter is and it can't be big wave riding and it can't be dropping 50 footers skiing because there will be no more me. Right. And, you know, with everything I've been through and survived to this date, I, I, I owe it to myself to live longer. <laughs>
0: Did you, when you're saying the bowl in the china shop thing, did you have a mantra to get you through that or any, any person that really helped you, um, maintain through that initial well, period?
1: Yeah. My, the first two people, my mother and father, they're still tight. We're a tight family. They built this incredibly powerful strong foundation that my rickety little shack sits upon so all the emotional fortitude and credit goes to them you know for my emotional fortitude but and then as it relates to the loss of the arm specifically i had a surgeon that flew in to try to rebuild my arm And he's a neurosurgeon. He had climbed Everest, and he's an athlete. And he could see, and my parents related to him who I was, at least athletically, and why this was going to really mess me up, they thought. And he came in the day after surgery when I woke up. And he said, look, kid, you got all these questions going through your head It seems really complicated. And it's not. It's either up or down, on or off. And you make the decision. You're either going to climb higher and be better, or you're going to let this take you down. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it's catalyzing um, how, how simple it really was. And, it, and he was right. And so that set me, I think, in the right direction. I, I was looking f- for, you know, my parents and my parents, like, so yeah, all right, I'm used to them. But so an outside force, it was this big, tall guy. And that, I don't know if it, you know, I'm sure maybe I would have succeeded without that advice, but it never left me. And it, right. he was right that it was really that simple you're either gonna win or you're gonna lose you're gonna let this hurt you or you're gonna it's gonna make you stronger mm. and it set me in the right direction
0: were there any moments when you were uh initially in rehabilitation that that came up the most for you like any of the most difficult i never things? went
1: to formal rehabilitation i walked into a physical therapy appointment right after my last surgery when there were multiple and everybody in the all the instructors and pts in the room were fat and out of shape and ate twinkies and i was an athlete who was on a super diet that knew more about training and rehab than they did times 10 so i walked out and i trained myself back to shape i got in my truck drove to colorado skied 110 days in a row came back boom like so those 110 days yeah I was used to my old body and I was coming to terms with the limitations on a daily basis. And I cried and I screamed and I broke poles and I threw skis off cliffs and, you know, the whole nine yards. And I exercised it. I exercised the demons. And really, I think truly came out of that season like um, a new man, like, all right, I am now Jeff Denholm with one arm. The other guy's dead. So live like, keep moving forward and do what you would have done with two arms live like it's worth it
0: yeah did you grow up skiing
1: i did oh since i was two yeah and hockey sk- skating a like guy could skate and ski really well when i was two i was slalom water skiing at age six yeah skis were a big thing
0: and i have always been you know
1: yeah we grew up in maine and my family's deep skiing roots and it's, you know, it's so fring cold. You better ski or you're going to hate it there. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Stay warm. Just and then and the
1: ponds are always frozen, you know, so you could skate. And it's just it as outside of organized hockey, it's a, to me, skating is a cultural thing that I grew up with. You know, the pond um, culture. And right. it's really a neat, unique culture. I, I cr- cr- crave it more than any sport. Like right. I just came back from New England for Christmas and I got four pond hockey days in. And I'm skating with my friend's kids who are now 6'3", 220 and dangerous. Yeah. But there are kids that I taught how to skate, you know. So And it's just you light a fire on the side of the lake and you skate all day and it's glass and use fresh air and it's just really cool. Yeah.
0: Um, we have had conversations about your head injury in the past. And what I've gathered from that was that it was a, a fundamentally different experience for you than any other injury or, or life experience, because at the end of the day, our minds are all we have Yes, and how we deal with any situation comes from our mind. So when it hits back to, let's say the basement, you know, like that's something that's very, very personal and very different.
1: It it was, it was... Well, I had a bunch of micro hits before that. I've had multiple concussions, have been knocked out cold three times before this happened. And so when the doctors did all the math and the extent of the damage that was done in this, I fractured my skull skiing February 17th, 2016 at Squaw Valley, clipped from behind by my buddy above a chute. Um, We were doing too fast and too close to each other. No one's fault. Both of us were culpable. And I tomahawked through rocks, broke my back, fractured skull, TBI, hospital, hyperbaric chamber, blah, 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 blah. But in the end, at the end of it all or in the immediate aftermath, when I got with the doctors and we evaluated everything, it was they laid out how, you know, how critical it was and how bad the damage and long lasting it could be. And it seemed esoteric at that time. But as, as things move forward and I progressed, I started to get depression and that was a physical manifestation of the injury and in manifesting itself in an emotional way. And I have never been depressed in my life. I have nothing phases me, you know, like I get over stuff so fast. I work through it. I'm just real pragmatic. I think I, my dad to, to thank for that, and it scared the shit out of me that I didn't have fo- total control over my emotions, and that I was just having these dark, dark feelings. And it, and it was a, a combination of a, the, the injury, and then I'm I'm running this business, and I was under a lot of pressure as a CEO to convert on funding at that time, right when the injury happened. So there was a shitstorm coming down on me, and. It created stress, which triggered depression. And so I I have never felt more vulnerable and out of control than when confronting that physical manifestation of being depressed for no I couldn't explain. I'm like, why do I feel like this? What's wrong with me?
0: Would it show up at a certain time in the day or was there like a first moment that you felt it? It just crept
1: in. It was insidious. It creeped in slowly, slowly, slowly. And then I just noticed it in my it was giving me the you know, the sort of the chronic fatigue. It was like depression causes you know, you're tired, you're cloudy. Lethargic, cloudy. Yeah. You don't necessarily I don't have the i mean not getting up and blasting out the door to go to Moss Landing anymore. I'm lollygagging, dragging, looking for excuses to I don't know, to to drag more. And so I just lump it all under depression. But there, you know, there might have been a bunch of little different categories I could put it in. And none of them I liked. And they were all really scary. And so that was when I really started to take stock in how serious this injury was and how if I continued to hit my head like this it, manifestations like that could be permanent and life would be really bad. Um, So how long did that last? And is it something that you're you're still feeling? Well, it's funny because we talked, we joked about this. One of the impetus behind getting on this, um, this podcast side being friends and and partners in crime. Um, The, it lasted, it was going on for over a year. Um, There was a definitely a gradual upswing and then sort of a peak and then I started to take. I went to the neuropsychologist. I took. I went to see shrinks for the first time in my life. I'd never done that, despite losing an arm, despite having plenty of reasons to go talk to people, I never did. Uh, and that's in part because I'm a stubborn East Coast punk and afraid to admit my weaknesses maybe I don't know so I did and then they and what they started peeling back the banana peel and they're like you listen you got it to be proactive about this and so I started meditating I started talking to people I started doing what you know other normal people might do when they're under adversity like that and the most impactful thing that I did to heal from the depression or the brain injury was microdosing And we talked about this, and it was, I can only say this, and that, like, I'm a busy guy. I have no desire to be escaping my mind and going to Burning Man every weekend, you know, partying like that. This is, I'm too busy, and I've sown my oats. But I started to read into it. There's a lot of information out there about it now. And I actually had a friend of mine, she does the um, ayahuasca stuff. She's been doing it for 10 years. And she immediately, when I told her I had starting depression, she's like, microdosing Jeffrey look into it. So read Paulin's book, listened to Ferris's podcast, listened to Rogan, listened to, you know, did a deep dive on it to the point where I felt comfortable and got tapped in and did it. And over, over a three month period of doing it, it felt like I was ripping cobwebs out of my brain. Like literally it cleared the dust out of my brain. It helped me overcome the depression and it just realign things. That's as best I could describe
0: it. Yeah, Michael Pollan's book How to Change Your Mind um, is one that I highly recommend and there's this quote in there by a guy named Stan Groff and he says, what the telescope was for astronomy and the microscope was for Biology. biology psychedelics will be for understanding the human
1: mind. That's amazing. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, I don't really, I can't quantitatively um, ex, you know, express to you how it worked, or why it worked. Um, but it worked. How often would you microdose? I was... D- for, when I started, I did it every Sunday for four weeks, and then I went every other week, and then I went once a month, and then I went back to every Sunday. And so I did three cycles of that. And so how, it was over eight months, really. Right. And uh, do you know how much
0: you would take? Because I think a lot of people talk about microdosing, but like, really, they're taking way more than they... No, I took... They should, and they're like, uh, well, yeah, I was talking well, to I some... A- f- I was microdosing, but I was talking to some ants, like, yeah, I don't know about that.
1: No, I never—you expe- I, you know, I did it with LSD, and I a friend mm. of mine was the same size as me physically. So the dosage, what he had done for years, I started to do, and he's a, no names mentioned, but he's a computer engineer guy that's been doing it for brain performance, believe it or not. And um, I'm a believer now. <clears throat> and so I never— got, it never made me, you know, there were no hallucinations or anything, but it would actually made me feel kind of wonky on the days that I did it. And I kind of, and I planned it alone time, quiet time, meditating, breathing, nothing stressful, no electronics, no TV, no Instagram, none of that. And just really give your brain a day. And then it was amazing because of the first few times. Okay. Yeah. All right. I feel a little something, but then once it started to click The energy and clarity that I had in the days or a week following a microdose was incredible. So I knew there was some big stuff going on.
0: Yeah, it's smart of you to really get the setting right, too. I can't stress that enough for people who are considering trying psychedelics in any capacity is... To get your setting right. Don't just go trip in any capacity and then, okay, I'm going to go about my day here and not think about it, but Mm -mm. to really meditate and because it is it's serious stuff. Like there is this kind of um, sexiness when talking about psychedelics, but. People are in pain, man, and if you do it right, it can really help, and if you do it wrong, it can go horribly wrong. Right. Um, So, I'm really happy to hear that, man. My
1: friend's been trying to make it to me to do that ayahuasca thing for years. I'm like, I'm not going to mention her name, but I just said, if you're going to unpack my luggage, you better make sure you have a Navy SEAL in the room to protect you. Yeah. (laughs) Because I don't know where we're going to go.
0: Yeah. I mean, I... um, I've done ayahuasca maybe half a dozen times and wow. it is, it is different than psilocybin mushrooms in the way that it's just so slow and there's a, there's a, um, an energy that you're communicating with. Like the, they call it mother ayahuasca yeah. where, you know, you can ask a question and that it comes back. There, it, there was certainly that feeling that I've never had from other psychedelics, um, yikes. So yeah, there's some the, uh, y- yikes, but in a very like, very loving way, you hmm. know. Like you, you get a, a compassionate voice coming back, um, and it it has helped me. But I also think, you know, it's interesting for me at, at this time being injured. Like I've, I have a pretty uh, rough, some pretty rough self talk sometimes, you know, especially when I can't. I'm not at full potency. Um, as I'm sure you can probably relate to, but, uh, you know, so I think like, man, I've, I've had all these psychedelic experiences and I still am like have shitty self-talk. What's up with that? And I, and I do think that just daily practice meditation, like getting back to it every single day, every morning for 10 minutes, then throughout the day, okay, a little bit of just check in before moving to that next thing has been the most impactful for me. But, I think what psychedelics can do is they can show you that mountaintop and you get that 360 degree view of like, whoa, right. this is it. Okay. Yeah. How do I get back here? Now let's remember that this is possible. Right. This is really, you know, this is what we can shoot for here. This kind of egoless love, mm-hmm. um, and then I, I do think that it takes chipping away every single day, and it does take work.
1: Breaking old habits, starting right. new ones, healthy ones. Exactly.
0: Right. Yeah, habits start as cobwebs and end in chains. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Who said that?
0: Um, who Who did say that? That was a- It's a classic. That's a classic one. I'm,
1: I don't want to misattribute it, but it wasn't me. Too many head injuries, you can't remember? <laughs> yeah, it's me. <laughs> Too much. Um, well, it's funny. It Fletcher Shenard and I were talking about that and that, like, so, okay, the football players, we all know they get pop, 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 yeah. pop. And hockey players, pop, pop, pop. Well, it wasn't so much the case for big wave riders because before the advent of the vest, they were a lot more discerning. They didn't take as many chances. They didn't take as many hits. And so now you got kids that know they have that backup, and are willing to take some really big hits and they're taking them over and over and over and I'll be, and I'm one of them, you know, I, I've surfed big waves with, and without those things, whether or not it, I, I, I don't think I have any less discretion with it because I'm older and I know, you know, I'm more, I'm very, you know, I'm extremely picky. Like if I get three big waves a winner, it's a big deal. You'll get three or four in a session. Right. So it's a different paradigm, but so Fletch and I were talking about this. I'm like, man, the, the you know, these young big wave riders with the skill and the balls are just taking 10 of those hits in one session now, and it's going to add up.
0: Yeah. Well, I had Sean Dollar on this podcast a while back, and he talked about his head injury um, when he fell on a big wave and he, um, he broke his— back i believe or neck neck, broke his neck and also got a bad head injury and he said that the toughest thing that he was dealing with was depression after that um
1: we centered we were I, i my brain injury happened right after his oh wow and he yeah he had very bad Traumatic brain injury, and then mine happened in February, and we were both in the hyperbaric oxygen therapy at the same time, and we were commiserating. And does I that think... help with inflammation? It does. Okay, it does. It um, and also. Through sustained exposure to oxygen under pressure um, repeatedly, day after day after day, you reach a threshold in the body based on, on the amount of time that you're spending in the tank and the amount of days that you do it, where your body starts to... It triggers exponential reproduction of stem cells. So systemic healing throughout the body and anti-inflammation. Oxygenation's everything. I mean, you look at the Wim Hof, right? It's all about... Oxygenating your body. We don't breathe. People are so stressed. They're uptight. They hold their breath. They're not. And you really should be using those massive airbags and breathing into every pore in your body every day for as a practice. And oxygen cures everything. It kills free radicals. It. Keeps your cells and mitochondria healthy and elasticity in your body. And it, it's the key to everything water yeah. and oxygen.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty simple.
1: Some sex <laughs> Sometimes they're well. diametrically yeah. opposed. Yeah. You're underwater and I need oxygen. A but. little music <laughs> and a soft
0: touch. That's yeah. all I need. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, so I wanted to ask you about um, your work as well it's really interesting and um as you know you you came to the motherfucker awards this year um it. for the fire category uh pg and e won for being mm, responsible yeah. for 17 of the last 21 california wildfires yeah. um and that is uh very close to the work that you do so i want to give you know, a chance to talk about that
1: i'm uh yeah thank you um well i got into the firefighting business in 09 as a contractor looking to for uh, augment my income in a capacity that wouldn't um, restrict my athleticism. Uh, so tough to do. Surfers spend their whole life trying to figure that out. And a friend of mine's a firefighter I said, "Hey, I met this guy, disability Jeff. He's on a short list. He owns a truck. He gets called. He gets work every fire." So I started with one fire truck. Became a federal contractor on the Viper Virtual Incident Procurement System, where private entities like myself own equipment the fires are so bad now the feds run out of equipment they call me I make money well working in the industry I started to read blogs and information I was looking to grow my business and understand more and it just kept coming across articles about the use of retardants um, and the the adverse effects on the environment, the adverse effects on people and firefighters and chemicals and some, some classes of retardants being some of the most um, carcinogenic chemicals in the world, not necessarily the aviation ones that I'm looking to replace, but it, would just, it just saw some big, big problems. And then when you look um, at the fire statistics and what we're dealing with as it relates to climate change the exponents are horrifying and so in 2008 i read an article that 50 million gallons of treated water was dropped on california and then i read a statistic that wildfire propensity is going to go up you know is going to double in the next 30 years i'm like what's the solution you know they're going to drop 100 million gallons every fire it doesn't seem sustainable and i happen to be talking to um chenard about it and he suggest it was just i was in the cafeteria at patagonia and just stumbled in you know it was just a conversation that just came up out of you know what are you doing blah blah, blah. and he suggested i go talk to rick Ridgway. um you know if you're because i was like i'm thinking about trying to solve this problem he goes talk to ridgeway he knows a lot of people he's well, the head
0: of environmental head of environment yeah at patagonia
1: another famous climber incredible man i walk in his office not only did he not know somebody but he knew this woman by name Arlene Bloom, who's a PhD chemist at Berkeley, and she's the director and founder of the Green Science Policy Institute, which is the de facto litmus for green chemistry internationally. And one of her primary focuses over the last 30 years has been banning toxic retardants. So here I am, like n- nudging this idea around, and the first real formal inquiry I make leads me to her. Like, so the project chose me. Fast forward. Eight years, I raised a bunch of money. Year one, business plan, prod, you know, market study, chase some wealthy tree huggers. Got the startup going. Met my business partner, 30-year firefighter engineer. Partnered with him. Hired some engineers. Design a product, a gel repart- um, retardant that's exponentially higher performing than anything they're using, and it's vegetable based and biodegradable.
0: What's the other uh, stuff? Based there, for? there's
1: it's check is the red aviation. Uh, it's a long-term retardant, um, and that's got phosphates, fun p polyphenol exhalates in it and a bunch of other bad stuff. They dilute it in water. Um, so it's quote unquote safer. But the reality is it's almost snake oil. It doesn't do much. They're, they're, the firefighting problems are becoming so big. They need to innovate. They need new technology. So forget the environmental part. The industry was ripe for change. And I met my business partner. Um, he was repping a gel product, which was oil-based and in itself toxic and couldn't be pumped through existing firefighting equipment. So it was never going to succeed and we sat down and looked at each other I said look I I have a rolodex I'm pretty sure I can drag dig up the money what do we need to do he said we need to make gel which is the future of firefighting flow through the equipment they don't where they don't have to buy new equipment it's not oil based and slippery it's not toxic it doesn't require a backpack to apply because they wear air in a building if we can do all those things it's going to be a paradigm shift in technology at a time when the firefighters and the general public are under siege by fire. And sure enough, in the last eight years since we started this business, the, the mother nature is speaking for herself, and the problems are bigger and bigger and worse and worse every year. So we just got through three years of vetting with CAL FIRE. They're the Navy SEALs of firefighting. And we're now in a position where we're endorsed, um, accredited, and qualified, uh, which was a very difficult task. There's a lot of barriers to entry in the B to G industry, business to government industry, which is where we reside. And I've spent the last year working with legislators in California, including Gavin Newsom, many of the senators who are from these fire-ravaged areas who are paying attention now. So we've got some legislative momentum. They're starting to realize that these are big problems that aren't going to go away. Um, I've managed to ferret myself in there enough so that we're going to get support from them in the capacity of statewide pilot programs to explore the use of our technology throughout these massive, highly funded fire departments that are under siege. Um, and that's happening now. And I'm also in a fundraising stage now because um, you, we need to partner with a strategic partner that can, we can, it's David and Goliath. We're going up against some big multinational chemical companies. Yeah, they, so probably don't, not,
0: they probably don't want to lose their market share yeah, as they, well. Yeah,
1: they don't. And you can't boot, you strap your way through these guys. So I'm in this stage now where I'm taking all the momentum we have and all the, you know, all the milestones, the boxes that we've checked and I'm looking and I'm, just now starting the process of trying to find the right strategic partner. Yeah, so
0: what an undertaking!
1: Gnarly, the hardest thing I've ever done oh, in a
0: life full of hard things. So I bet, man. Yeah. Um, do you ever see a documentary called Merchants of Doubt? You'd no. love it, man. It's uh, it's all about various industries um, that have they hire PR firms to um, instill enough doubt in the public that it will seem like the jury's still out on various issues. And one of the um, issues that they cover in is fire retardants, because it was coming out that a lot of these retardants in couches, in mattresses were toxic, carcinogenic, and uh, the industries didn't want to change. So they hired PR firms to get firefighters on board to make it seem like this is something that really needed to happen. And um, the, the way that they lay it out has helped me see news and see advertising in a whole new way.
1: Yeah, it's insidious. Yeah. There are a lot of deep pockets out there incentivized to create fake news to support their agenda, which is making their pockets deeper yeah um so the couch and clothing retardants that you speak of arlene bloom was she's been focused centrally on ridding those from use and banning them in california um when those materials burn inside of burning building the gases from the retardant themselves penetrate the firefighters nomex suits let alone their skin transdermally, and she's proven them to be carcinogenic. 63% of all firefighters die of cancer. They have the highest occupational cancer rate of any occupation in the nation. Most people don't know that, which is one of the big problems we're looking at solving. Are the air aviation retardants and the Class A foam in every truck that our product replaces solely responsible? No, but why, why give them another tool that in itself could potentially hurt them? I mean, there's so much in the deck already stacked up against them. Let's remove it. And also, let's give them a new weapon to fight. They need a bit better weapon. The fires are so bad. They, they look at the, look where we live. Look at the innovation of technology around us. It's it's a it's a crime that the same effort in trying to create the next IT platform over the hill isn't being applied to solving this fire issue in the state. Nine billion dollars in losses last year. Thousands of people homeless in the state. M- millions of acres torched. Trees, the lungs of our planet, burning, um, and. You know the problems go on and on and on.
0: Do you have any thoughts on uh, potential solutions? One, PG and E just declared bankruptcy a couple of weeks ago yeah, to
1: avoid culpability.
0: Oh yeah, right. um, and their their CEO walked with millions, of, um, very, uh, very <laughs> conveniently. Um, but uh, do you have any thoughts on on the idea of putting power lines underground or various solutions?
1: Yeah, I mean, sure. PG and E was a monopoly. And they have the money to do things right. They have the money to clear trees away from all the lines in the state. It would have affected their bottom line. And would they have had as big bonus checks at the end of the year? No. But they'd have been doing the right thing. They have their massively um, profitable corporation and monopoly. So they're assholes. It's like beyond ridiculous what's going on with them. But yeah, lines, clearing the lines, trees, preventative. So the governor just released two new executive orders um he spent the first day in office this year at a cal fire station because he realizes the biggest issue he has domestically at home here one of the biggest issues if not the biggest is fire um and so they are expanding the fire the fire budget by hundreds of millions and they're they're their threefold focus: one, advancing new technologies. What's out there? What can be developed? What can we use to help us defend ourselves from this new reality? Two, forest um, um, fire mitigation is really boils down to. Forest management and clearing the forests of underbrush. You can see it happening here on Graham Hill, Cal Fire up at the top. They're clearing, you know, back 50 meters into the woods on each side of the road so people don't get trapped when there's a fire. Um, And then the... third one they're focused on is simply on increasing the the amount of firefighters in the state. So they're added, you know, 80 million just to hire a bunch of, which is great because it creates new jobs. And there's a bunch of young kids in the state that need a good job. And it's it's a worthy one. And there are a lot of good people out there that would make great firefighters. So um, it's pretty telling that the first day in office in the fourth largest economy in the world that the number one priority this guy's focused on is fire. So our timing's right with the business. It's an emerging market. I hate to say it.
0: I was down in LA uh, for the the Los Angeles fires and they closed Topanga. Um, That's where I stay when I'm down there. And apparently after the fact, they said they weren't worried about the fire jumping all the way to Topanga, but they didn't have enough firefighters that if someone started a fire in Topanga, if there was arson, that they would be able to have enough firefighters to cover that as well. So they, they closed it as a safety precaution.
1: Yep. That's uh, the job of these incredible incident commanders, these high level firefighters that essentially are waging war when these things happen. And they are conscribed to um, set up a camp of thousands of men and implement the use of aircraft and engines and crew deployment and public safety. It's an it's a. It, they're incredible. And so they have to make decisions, like you just suggested, that are tough and they have to allocate resources effectively. And you can't draw down all of the firefighting resources from these big cities to fight one's region because if something breaks out there, then what happens? So they're bringing in people like me, private firefighters. They're bringing in fire agencies from all over the world to fight these things because of the need and the necessity. For more forces in the field at these times. Yeah. And that's why the governor's focused on expanding the budget to hire more people, manage the forests better. I mean, it, it, honestly... It's all about urban interface because fires should they should let them burn and control them so they they um, you know the forests are healthier. But when you've got homes and buildings and businesses in the way, it's now a public safety and a monetary thing. And so, I think it's going to be a combination of mandating certain construction materials in these areas where you can't build these pretty wooden homes anymore. They need to be tile and concrete and fireproof you know, 95% fireproof. And then that makes sense. Like everyone, if you've been to Bermuda, but they get mowed over by hurricanes every year and they learn long ago. So any new construction on the Island has to be concrete rebar. I mean, it's like a very expensive construction, but you can't get insured or build a structure unless it's built that way. It's hurricane-proof. Yeah. And so any new construction in these UI, the urban interface, in the Western states and throughout the world, I mean, Portugal, Spain, Australia, this is happening all over the world, the fire issues due to climate change, um, they, they they, need to mandate that these structures are fireproof in the future. Yeah. Um, and that's just going to take time.
0: Yeah. Did you always uh, know that you were going to head into some kind of discipline? It seemed like early on from... Uh, being a D1 hockey player to then working on ships. It seems like you are the kind of person who either could have gone military, firefighting.
1: My dad taught me out of military, I, and he was in the military. It's funny because I, I I was doing triathlon. And I met this kid in the Navy. He was a corpsman in the SEAL, and he's like, oh, my God, dude, we need you. And I got on the phone with my father, and I was working as a merchant marine in Alaska. And he said, you already have a career. He goes, you want to go fight oil wars? He goes, you're not liberating Europe from Nazism, you're fighting an oil war. You're fighting for politicians and corporate leaders and oil. You like that? And I thought about it, and he was right. And so I didn't, and I carried on, and I lost my arm anyway. <laughs> so, uh, but no, yeah, I've always been drawn to, like I dropped out of college because I, I, I dropped out of college, moved to Seattle because I saw Alaska. I saw my future. I wanted to fly. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be an outdoorsman. I, big, I was my big, my in Heming, my Hemingway, you know, I just, I... I was struggling in school and ADD in confined spaces and um, had been working on boats while I was in college in Boston and had my merchant marine, first, um, my second mate over the time of two summers working as on the harbor cruise boats and booze cruises and had built up, I already had a career underway and most kids in college don't know what they want to do. So I leveraged that, went to Alaska, went to Seattle, took commercial diving courses and kept climbing the merchant marine ladder until the point where I got hurt and then was really lucky in that i back east after i after losing my arm i figured now i'll never get a job on a boat i'll never get my pilot's license i'll never be able to work as a commercial diver and this famous undersea explorer through a very long and winding story as to how i met him ended up hiring me to work for him um digging up pirate ships all over the world as a commercial diver his name was barry clifford and happened to be surfing with one arm on martha's vineyard with his son who i didn't know his son is was at the time and serving this big beach break um, on the vineyard with one arm and son was really impressed, told his dad and his dad tracked me down and I went down for an interview and brought my mountain bike and they were all he and his crew were all mountain biking for the first, you know, first couple of years and I smashed them all on a mountain bike ride and he was like, Holy shit, who is this guy? Do you just
0: go one handed or uh, you I used, you I gonna be a
1: little bit more than a little a shock I built I was into you know, bikes a lot more then and then now, there different chapters of my life. And so, after my injury, I built an arm with a shock and got right into it. I used to ride those first rides, it would beat my arm up so bad I'd throw up from the pain. It would swell up inside the socket of my prosthesis every ride. And uh, that was hard, but I, I really enjoyed it. You had a bunch of bad crashes, and then ultimately, here I moved here and was mountain biking, and I had another. It was in oh seven I ate shit in um Nicene by myself and smacked into rocks and got knocked out and broke two of my teeth off and sort of was like, eh, you know, it's just really sketchy mountain biking with one arm to get so
0: mountain biking sketchy with two arms. Two arms, yeah. Yeah. Because you can get going really fast and you don't need to be that good.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i was pr- pretty you know riding came easy you know and even with one arm i could hang with most weekend warriors but the reality is that there's a tipping point and it it came often with one arm and the downside was the broken bones and more concussions so i've laid off that but so i don't know what your well, initial we're question talking was. about diving
0: though i, All I, mean, right. I want to hear yeah, a little I bit got, more about that
1: yeah so i this guy hired me and he made a, a has made a career he found a pirate ship Black Sam Bellamy shipped the Witta on Cape Cod in the late 80s, and he authenticated it as truly that, which was the first truly authenticated pirate ship ever discovered. Uh, it sunk in April of 1717 at a big uh, nor'easter. Bellamy was a defected um, British um, naval captain who went about sacking slave ships and liberating slaves and taking the loot and from the English, which they didn't like, and was steaming his way up the East coasts on uh, the 1700s and got caught in a bad storm and went down. And there were rumors all around this and some relatively good data on the subject. And this guy, Barry, who grew up on the Cape, was a diver as well bought it hook line and sinker to the point where he spent his whole life looking for it and he found it and he proved it and then from there built a career on looking for other pirate ships all over the world they're still doing it to this day I was diving on the site this past August with Brandon Clifford whose son who is very tight with all the Patagonia athletes Brandon's an insanely talented action sports athlete could care less about promoting himself but is a world-class big mountain skier world-class surfer, w- probably one of the best big mountain kiters alive, um, an extremely humble kid, but his dad's the treasure hunter. And so he's positioning himself to carry on with his father's legacy with the company and expand on it. And um, I got out the fortunate to know him and he believes in me. And so I was out there diving on it last summer. We found a bunch of treasure. One
0: of the thing that, things that I love so much about diving are the views that you get? Yeah, the, I mean, you get views doing any sport, but being underwater to see planet. some of that shit—it's it another planet. Really, is another planet.
1: You're stepping into another planet. It's like going to space. I've never been to space, but the oceans—I mean, for <laughs> you us, you don't need to. Yeah, yeah, you don't. It's right here. It's a, it's an infinite universe right there. Yeah, forget the rest of it.
0: Well, and growing up surfing, you really don't see under there. You're no. on top of the water. But to the, uh, just in the last couple of years that I've gotten into spearfishing, it's like, oh, my God, this was here the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And I can well, imagine when you're actually looking for uh, buried treasure.
1: Well, I started diving. I was certified at 15, so I've always been in diving. But, and then there was a school DIT in Seattle when I was doing my Alaska thing. I took some courses there in, in commercial diving, and there's a, there, you realize that, whoa, there's a career to be had from this, and then lost my arm, and I'm like, ah, no. one's going to hire a one-armed diver and that was wrong and spent years diving all over the world madagascar found captain kidd's ship um off the east coast of madagascar in 99 2000 and haiti looking for the santa maria and these guys have got all kinds of tricks up their sleeves and they're constantly looking for new finds
0: how do you look for buried treasure
1: the, well, the way they operate is they have, um, they have tap into academic resources for his, historical information about the likelihood of actually finding a specific target. And they're maritime historians. And there used to be a man named Ken Kincor, Ph.D. He died of a heart attack, but he was really the brain trust behind that organization. And he spent his life pouring over. The guy was from Indiana, right? Like, you know, got seasick. But he loved pouring through nautical records and historical accounts of seamanship and folklore at sea. And so he would do the hard science, if you will, and then they'd send the crazy guys like us out with magnetometers and a bunch of equipment and dig around to try to find evidence of what he thinks was there based on what he read. And you find investors who are fucking crazy enough to fund all that and, and you've got a business. So that's, that's how they do it in a nutshell. Um, and it's been, they've never, they don't really sell, it's not about finding and selling gold or anything. They don't do that. They've been proliferating education and filling museums with these artifacts to educate people and to entertain them and, and making their money that way and through movies. The Discovery Channel did a movie on our project in Madagascar called The Quest for Captain Kid. It released in 2000 and it was the most watched show on Discovery Channel that year. Um, a quest for a Captain Kid. I don't know if you could find it anymore on a Betamax or something.
0: <laughs> what, uh, what are you most interested in learning these days? What skills are you going after?
1: Well, I'm trying to learn how to be happy with myself, how to feel strong and manly and not do the things that are hurting me. Um, like, what's the next chapter? So I, you know, maybe music. I've always been kind of a half-assed drummer and play harmonica and decent voice and timing and rhythm. My parents are classical pianists and grew up with a very strong musical influence and I've always kind of, because of sports and career and this and that, never really had the balls to delve into it. So maybe the next chapter is music. I'm thinking that because I need something. I'm not this, I'm an all or nothing guy, you know. yeah, and, you, and you know
0: yourself too well to know that if you put yourself in that extreme situation, you're going to go for it. Yeah. So you need to... It's I like, need something that polarizes It's like an alcoholic. Right. you just you got to stay away from the bar sometimes.
1: Yep. And well I'm looking for the new chapter, so I, yeah. I think what am I... First of all, I'm looking to master this being CEO of a startup company to the point where we have raised enough money or enough market penetration to attract a real CEO to replace myself. So that's what I'm currently... Um, you know, academically engaged in or cerebrally fully committed to. I've dropped in. I'm halfway down the face of an 80 footer, and I'm either going to stick the landing and come out of the barrel, or get mowed and held down four waves. You know, we'll see. Yeah, but I dropped in, so
0: yeah. I well, I commend you for dropping it in. I also commend you for uh, this next chapter because it, I would imagine, will be the only endeavor where you're forced to soften. To move through.
1: Yep, that's a good point, I, Kyle. I yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. You're absolutely right, though. I, and I have to be ha- like find strength in that softening, like or find so- self-esteem within it,
0: and presence, presence, too. presence. You know, I, I think that you and I are just speaking personally. Like, I. I have always loved getting myself into extreme situations because it puts me in the moment. It's this intense catalyzing, catalyzing presence. Um, but you, I'm realizing you can't just continue to chase peak moments and then feel the doldrums after that. The, the key, and I think that what you're probably going to be finding as you dive into this next chapter is the ability to find true presence in a moment of silence.
1: Yep. That could be it. Yeah. And I have a hard time. Like you said, you're practicing meditation every day. It's so hard. I'm so ADD, so high energy. Even now, how old are you? 32? 29. 29, right. So, right. So I'm 23 years older than you. So, you're way ahead of me uh, in that respect. I wish I had, you know, back in the '80s, that just this stuff wasn't around, and I wish I'd learned to meditate then because it's you—it's powerful stuff, and I'm still trying to get my head around that. And... Yeah,
0: it really is, man. And uh, the, the thing that's that's helping me is just do it first thing in the morning before you turn the before you turn the phone on before you do anything else. Or what I do is so I use an app um, called Waking Up with Sam Harris. Um, it's a great app. It's ten minute meditations, and I keep my phone on airplane mode, and I'll download the meditation th- the night before, so I don't need to turn it on.
1: And Sam Harris, the author that he's wrote the author of oh, Christianity re- and all yep. yeah yeah
0: but he wrote uh, the Moral Landscape right. and Letter he's, to a Christian Nation. Yeah, he's awesome. He's he's awesome. a yeah. fucking spiritual gangster
1: is what yep. he is. Yeah, yep. he's
0: and <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh he some uh, of those
1: guys you had at the at the motherfucker awards were spirit who was that chris uh chris ryan oh my god he's a trip i started reading about him he's incredible
0: yeah chris yeah. ryan the um <laughs> yeah sex at dawn yeah I, what up,
1: it, i know i'm gonna get that i yeah. have to
0: i'll get you a copy yeah yeah i live with him when i'm in la and then so you would
1: surprise fun. me as one of my favorite editorialists who a man who i am surprised is still alive for the frankness in which he writes was Mataibi. I'm a huge fan of his, and then obviously he pops up on the stage, and then I couldn't, I didn't find him afterwards. I wanted to approach him like a little kid, you know, like, oh man, I love you. He's my hero.
0: Oh, he's in straight up. I uh, how's he still alive? I have no idea. No, I'm. The he's bi-
1: called so much bullshit on so many fucking bad people, and with the precision that he
0: does it, you know, that's that's the thing that I appreciate about him is that there are a lot of people who are angry. They're angry at the banking system and all of these. Crooks on Wall Street, but they don't really understand it, or they haven't done the research to get so precise that they say, "All right, Jamie Dimon wrote this email for this amount, and this proves that it is a systemic issue." And he he follows that thread so far back that he he brings up cases like he's a prosecutor. Um, Clearly,
1: and, he doesn't suffer from ADD.
0: Well, he just <laughs> he's he really. Um, He's sharp. He really, doesn't give a fuck. Like he, he's a um, huge fan of Huntress Thompson. Yeah. Um, and if you so read on the campaign trail of '72, which is a book that I'm reading right now, I highly recommend it. Um, I opened it the other day, and he wrote the introduction for it. Um, and I think that there is something. Like what he does is takes these really big, seemingly wonky issues and makes them digestible. He boils it down. Boils it down. He's really funny and he gives zero fucks. I know. And I got his email from my friend Abby Martin, who's another journalist who was a a presenter there, Um, and I thought, man, for the category that Chase Bank is going to win, it would be so amazing to get Taibbi to but he was like, I mean, he's How just... How did you approach it? Did you know him before? No, I didn't know him. So this, this is a cold <laughs> How the hell did you... I, I couldn't email. believe it. He walks out. I'm like,
1: what, Tierman? Yeah. What the... Are you kidding me?
0: Yeah, no, that wasn't the home run. I, I wrote him a cold email. I'm like, hi, Matt. My name is Kyle. I'm producing this show called the Motherfucker Awards. We're celebrating the companies that fuck Mother Earth the hardest. Uh, Chase Bank is going to win. Um, we would love for you to present it. I know that you're on... The east coast this is the day um he wrote back 10 minutes later and said i'm in what do i need to do oh my god he's legit like, yes you yes must yes, through the roof. yes yes yeah um so that was the um you, you ever like set up little, this is a tangential story but I was actually down in Mexico when I wrote the story for my brother Toby's wedding I remember and yeah. uh, we were down there with um, with Kaj Larson yeah. and a bunch of friends another character <laughs> yeah so I, I write this email and um, a lot of them are then gonna head down to the beach and they're gonna do this thing called Flotopia, where they tie together all of these uh, blow up animals and they get on on the ocean. And Toby had a kite, like a kite surfing kite, and then he was gonna do a downwinder with like 20 people, and they were all getting wasted on it. And I wrote the email, and I was late for the Flotopia. So I'm running down the beach. And Kaj is right next to me and he's like, We gotta get on the Flotobia but they had already taken off. So we like do a full like whoosh, run, like dolphin dive into the ocean. And Kosh is a Navy SEAL. He's like yeah, a yeah. fucking flipper, dude. Oh, so he no. just takes off and gets it <laughs> not right only that away. He's a
1: Navy SEAL, but I think before he was a Navy SEAL, he was a decorated open ocean swimmer. Like, not all Navy SEALs, yeah, are naturals in the water. That guy's a fish. He's a
0: fish. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets them right away. Meanwhile, I have like the I have the surfer swimmer stroke. You know, I'm all arms and <laughs> no technique. And I'm like going. I like fuck. Okay. So I'm starting to catch up, but they also have a kite and they're going downwind and it's windy. So I'm not really gaining on them. So I'm swimming and they're like, come on, Kyle, get there. And I'm starting to get tired. It was like 10 minutes of swimming as hard as I can to try and get this thing. And I'm still like fifteen yards behind them. And I think to myself, I like set up these little games in my mind where I'm like, if I catch them, Matt Taibi will agree to be a presenter. If I catch them, Matt Taibbi will agree to be a presenter. I'm just like, dig deep, Kyle, dig deep. And I start paddling. <laughs> and I fucking this girl like holds out her foot on the Floatopia and I grab the foot oh, and nice. pull myself up. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like practically vomiting. They give me a Coors
1: Light. Yeah, I'm perfect. And we go
0: back in and I check my phone and I got the Bam, Taibbi.
1: Yeah. How'd that Coors Light shoot you? Uh, I... My first Molokai crossing I finished prone, you know, one arm, one of my best friends from New Hampshire, Trevor Moore, was at the finish line. And it took me eight hours and eight minutes to do that because my paddle arm failed halfway through. I one armed it. It was a really rough race. And that's a long time to do one thing, eight hours in the sun and the heat and all that. And he, he was standing in ankle deep water There was Jerry Lopez with a lay To put around my neck And my buddy handing me a Corona And I drained that thing before taking any hydration in And 15 minutes later I'm on an IV <laughs> yeah. In a tent going Holy shit <laughs> Probably should have had a Gatorade
0: uh, The moments we live for <laughs> um, Well hey man, this was such a blast Let's do it again awesome. This is just Thank you, endless stories Kyle, Thank yeah. you, Jeff right on, bro. Cheers that's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called This Storm Will Go For A Long Time by... by... Sleep North America. They listened to this podcast and they sent me some music. If you're a musician and you want your song played at the end of this show, email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can send me those little voice memos. Let me know where you are. Where are you right now? Give me a few details. Address the community. If you have something good, something you know, non-self-promotional but like good for the world style, stuff, like, hey, I'm doing this beach cleanup and want more people there, um, protest, whatever, record it, try and keep it under a minute, and I'll play it at the beginning of the show. You can email to info at kyle.surf. Once again, thank you very much to Mudwater and Santa Cruz Medicinals for supporting this show. If you want to get a box of goodies, head over to my website, kyle.surf, to get mud, Santa Cruz Medicinals, and the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. That's it for now. I'll see you all very, very soon. And um, I just appreciate all of you very much. You, you really have no idea. Um, you make it possible for me to go around and interview all these people, and uh, I don't take it for granted. So thanks, everyone. Onwards.